Acts chapter 28, uh, beginning to read at verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had, spoke, had said this one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these, th- these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to uh, live it out, to have your word transform us, shape our thinking. Uh, I pray that you would bring your encouragement, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit and give to us the kind of spiritual sight Uh, that would enable us to look at life as Jesus looked at life. Uh, I pray that you would take off from our eyes any blindness that may be there. And, Father, that your Spirit would have his way with each one here. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've come to a section of Acts that I think very, very vividly uh, describes the blindness that Romans 11 talks about. And there are a number of reasons why I wanted to preach on this theme. You could actually go through these verses and draw out a number of themes. I'm not going to be doing that. I just want to focus in on the blindness of Israel. And the first reason that I want to do this is I think when we realize the blindness that we ourselves have been saved from, it'll make us just love the Lord that much more and worship Him that much more. A second reason why I want to look at this is it will give us humility at realizing that even the covenant community can fall into blindness. And then thirdly, uh, there is another reason. It's uh, to overcome a very common and a very racist interpretation of this passage and of Romans 11 that basically says, oh yeah, the the Jews, they're hard-hearted. They are, uh, you know, very blind and they're ones who are not... Uh, willing to submit to the gospel, implying that the Gentiles themselves are, are better off, that they uh, do not have that kind of blindness, and nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.18 says that apart from grace, all men are spiritually blind. All men. It says they have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. See, that blindness is a condition of every human heart. It's not just the Jews who have this. And so we should not misapply this passage and say, wow, the reason that the Jews are rejected, they're particularly evil people. 
Uh, that's not the case at all. What astonished Paul was that there was such pervasive blindness within the covenant community itself. Uh, he calls it a mystery, which means he doesn't even understand it. What is going on here? Romans 11.25, it's a mystery, he says. Why? They had the covenants uh, of promise. Uh, they had the Scriptures. They had the sign of the covenant. They had the blessings of the covenant. They had God's presence in their midst. They had the temple. They had all of these ceremonies which were every day preaching the gospel at them, and yet they became blind to the gospel, and they became blind uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Now, his conclusion in Romans chapter 11 is not, well, you Gentiles, uh, uh, you know, are much better off than the Jews, uh, that you don't need to worry about this. His conclusion is quite the opposite. It was, if the Jews could fall and stumble in that way, do not be proud because you yourself can be broken off from that olive tree. That's exactly the conclusion that he comes to. Romans 11.25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part... So it wasn't everybody in Israel that was blind, but blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then in the next verse he says, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Israel as a whole nation is going to be converted. All Israel will be converted. Just like Nineveh, from the top down to the bottom, every one of them was converted. That's what's going to happen in one day. Isaiah 66, verse 8, some think, Zechariah 3 and other passages speak of that as well. But clearly, in one day, that nation will be uh, born again. And uh, in the meantime, Romans says that there's only going to be a small remnant of Jews at any given time that are going to be believers. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be the entire nation converted. Now, why God, does God allow this? Why does God allow blindness and hardening in part to happen? Paul says, I don't know. It's a mystery. But... God is sovereign, and he submits uh, to God's sovereignty. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16, speaks of this blindness using the imagery of a veil. Now, a veil that he was talking about, something you can't see through. I mean, it's just like over uh, covering your eyes. And he says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so this passage in Acts 28 that we're looking at speaks of both sides of that equation. It speaks of people who could not see. doesn't matter how clearly Paul speaks. They're blinded. They cannot understand what he is saying. And it speaks of others who have the veil taken away and they're wonderfully, soundly converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think this is a great passage to look at when we see pervasive blindness in our own nation. It's all around us, and what we can rejoice in is no blindness is too difficult for the Lord to overcome. Amen? Uh, he can just speak those words, and uh, the blindness will be taken away. Now, I want to apply this as well to our own congregation, because if the Jews in the first century could be blinded, to the truth of the Messiah, it is very easy for us to become blinded to the Scriptures as well. Second Peter chapter 1 lists several things that believers need to add to their faith. You may add virtue and you add knowledge. And he says, if you're lacking any of these things, here's what happens. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So he's saying even believers can go down this slippery hill into more and more blindness if they do not watch out. So don't assume that the covenant saves you. Don't assume that because you've grown up in a covenant home that you're automatically saved. Uh, praise God, <laughs> and I do every day, that His grace pervasively goes to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, to a thousand generations. That is an incredible comfort, but we must never presume upon that. Never presume upon it. In fact, I want you to turn forward a few chapters to Romans chapter 11. I think it's important that we read this as a background to understanding uh, this passage because it's so frequently misunderstood. Romans 11, and we'll begin reading at verse 17. 
And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, even though children have grown up in the covenant, uh, just like the Jews back then did, they need to know the reality of the gospel. And so uh, I think we're going to be seeing this is a passage that's relevant for our nation. It's relevant for the church. It's relevant for our families. And uh, I, I want to be applying it in those ways. Okay, let's go back to Acts 28. I want to look first of all at the blindness illustrated in the Jerusalem Jews. At verse 17 it says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the fathers. The first evidence of the blindness of these Jews is they made false accusations against Paul. They brought him to court, and uh, the court uh, examined these accusations. We looked at all that before. I won't go through that here again. But he says, I was not at fault. They were absolutely false accusations. That we're going to be seeing shortly. They knew they were false accusations. Uh, here, I just want to mention to you that uh, it's possible for people to willfully, knowingly bring false accusations against you. It happens all the time, and we should not be surprised by it. This is what happens from graceless hearts. What we need to be marveling at is that we're not doing the same thing all the time. We might fall into it from time to time, but we need to marvel, Lord, thank you so much for taking the blinders off my eyes, and please, Lord, spare me from this kind of a graceless heart that is willing to tear down others falsely so that I can be built up. The second evidence of blindness was that they refused to be convinced by clear-cut evidence. So um, begin reading at verse 18. Who, referring to the Roman court, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. He's saying that a Roman court examined all of the details and there was not one shred of evidence that I was guilty. And yet here are these Jews. They still won't give up. They still are coming after me. Now, you might think, based upon this, that, um, you know, maybe the Romans are a little bit more objective. Uh, they wanted to let me go, it says here. Maybe there are some unbelievers who are not blinded like these Jews are. The Scripture says otherwise, and it's actually hinted at right here. Paul has to walk a very careful tightrope when he's talking because he's chained to a Roman guard, and he maybe has other Romans around. He's got these Jewish leaders and he's so careful what he says, but he implies here the Romans are just as prejudiced by something in their lives. If they have found him not guilty, why is it they didn't let him go? You look at Roman jurisprudence, they would have to let him go. 
So what he's saying here is that there is something not right going on about the Romans. He doesn't specify it because he's not wanting to get them upset with him that much here. But if you remember from the trial, Felix wanted to get a bribe, right? And there were others who were wanting to please the Jews. There was things internally that were going on that were keeping them from being objective, even though they have the illusion and they have the system of objectivity of law. So even the Romans are blinded. Earlier, uh, Agrippa had told Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost, but not quite. Why does he not become a Christian? Well, uh, he had idols as well, just like Felix did. And uh, uh, sinful men and women, as good as they may think themselves to be, their hearts are chained to idols. It may be an idol of pride, or it may be an idol of wanting somebody else to think well of them, or money, or any number of things. But the Bible says our wills are bound by our human depraved nature. And it says that our minds are also not subject to God's law. Romans 8, verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. You know, when Christ came, how many thousands of miracles did Jesus do? Absolute incredible miracles. And yet the Pharisees say, show us a sign. Well, how many signs do you need to see? Uh, they, they would not be convinced. Uh, there is this one man who comes up to... Actually, Jesus came up to him because he didn't even know Jesus was there. He was a paralytic and blind. And there's a big crowd around. Christ comes over, speaks healing into his life, and then disappears through the crowd so that the man cannot see him. Well, the, the Pharisees are very, very upset. And uh, they uh, say, who healed you? You can't be healed on the Sabbath. Who healed you? Well, he didn't know because he didn't see Jesus. Later, when he's all alone, Jesus comes up to him and he says, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, what does this ungrateful guy do? Very next verse says, he goes off to the Pharisees. Oh, it's Jesus that did it. You can, you can find him right over there. And then they go and they try to uh, kill Jesus. I've often wondered, what is the worst thing? that came upon that man, because it's almost guaranteed, a worse thing came upon him than what he, was, what he was healed from. And so there's blindness. Blindness can be manifested in so many different ways, but it's still true that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Let me just illustrate this, and I'm going to take a few minutes on this, because um, uh, th this is an area that's sometimes hard for people to understand. Why is it that people are so blind in D.C.? It could be right here. It could be in your own home. Why is it? that they are so blind. I want to just use as an illustration the area of evolution. <clears throat> we should not be surprised when unbelievers hold so dearly to their presuppositions that no amount of evidence you might throw at them will overturn uh, their desires. Creationists have presented mountains and mountains of evidence over the past few decades that evolution absolutely cannot be true, and yet Christian evolutionists and non-Christian evolutionists, they cling to that with all their might. <coughs> in 2005, <coughs> an, uh, some evolutionists found a Tyrannosaurus rex thigh bone, and part of it looked still like bone. didn't look like stone, okay? Upon cutting it open, they were stunned to find some bone marrow, blood cells, soft and pliable tissue, including flexible blood uh, vessels. And you've got pictures of that in, your, in the front page of your bulletins there. Now, I was reading the account of this person who was discovering it, and, and she was saying, no, this can't be. No, that's impossible. And everybody else was saying, but it looks like blood cells. No, that's impossible. It cannot be. Uh, it cannot be true. Uh, it, it's just too old to be there. But there it was staring them in the face. Well, they finally became convinced that these were blood cells, so they published an article, and it was very, very carefully studied, and there were all kinds of controls and things that were put on. Let me tell you, it hit the fan. When that got into the news, evolutionists unleashed their fury upon this team. There is no way that a 68-million-year-old bone can have bone marrow in it and blood cells and things like this, uh, and yet... Uh, and this team, they were just flabbergasted. Hey, we're just reporting what we saw. And, uh, but they were just being persecuted. Well, here's what happened. 
This team itself, plus other teams, came in. They tried to do study after study to disprove there being any blood cells there. They were just mystified by this. And there were numerous different studies, including injecting rats with the substance to see if there were any reactions, you know, uh, antibodies uh, to specific to hemoglobin. And when they found, ooh, there are, then they said, okay, well, maybe that could be explained, uh, maybe a general uh, reaction. And so they did other tests, and it came this very specific to this um, uh, particular bone marrow. In fact, I've been, uh, th those pictures there, I think you can see, I, I didn't want to spend the money doing the color, but the color pictures are really cool. But you would think that this would convince these evolutionists that these bones are young. No way. No way. Uh, they don't know how the bones got so well preserved for 68 million years, but they did somehow. And let me quote one of the lead team members. She said, I mean, can you imagine pulling a bone out of the ground after 68 million years and then getting intact protein sequences? That's just mind-boggling how much preservation there is in these bones. Uh, Mary Schweitzer, who made the discovery, said something similar. She said, finding these tissues in dinosaurs changes the way we think, now you'd expect about evolution, but she didn't say that, changes the way we think about fossilization because our theories of how fossils are preserved don't allow for this. We may not really know as much about how fossils are preserved as we may think. And the creationists are saying, hello, <laughs> this is not a mystery of how 68 million years, you know, these, uh, these uh, blood cells and, and all of these soft tissues and even the moisture can be preserved. This is evidence that these are young bones, but they just cannot come to that uh, conclusion. They cannot give up their pet theories. Uh, in fact, uh, these team members said, actually, this is pretty cool. After they got over the initial fright of this, they said, this actually proves evolution. Let me quote her. She said, comparing the amino acid sequence from the T-Rex collagen to a database of existing sequences from modern species showed it shared a remarkable similarity to that of chickens. <laughs> the precise order of the amino acids is determined by instructions found in DNA. This finding supports the idea that chickens and T-Rex share an evolutionary link and bolsters previous research showing that birds evolved from dinosaurs and that birds are living dinosaurs. So can you see the problem here? Instead of ditching their theory, it's easier for them to believe that blood cells, blood vessels, and other soft tissue can be preserved for 68 million years than to believe something that's contradictory to evolution. They just cannot believe. They, they've changed their views about bones. They've not changed their views about uh, evolution. Well... Here are some pictures of living trilobites, or at least creatures that look very similar to trilobites. What do evolutionists say about this? Well, they can't claim when these got discovered recently, oh, those can't be trilobites because trilobites went extinct 350 million years ago. Besides, we date things by trilobites. It would be rather inconvenient. And so these just get renamed as something else. Now, could this be a slightly different species? Yeah, it could be. Uh, it may not be a, a trilobite. But what I find interesting is the, the hysteria that the evolutionists went through when this guy, who was an evolutionist himself, said, hey, we've got some living trilobites. You should see the persecution that was unleashed against this guy. In fact, he became so disillusioned with the evolutionary community. He said, all I'm doing is reporting the evidence and uh, yet they did not like that evidence. If the evidence... Why? Trilobites are absolutely essential for a, a lot of the dating methods that evolutionists engage in. And so if the evidence doesn't fit, what do you do? You crucify uh, the evidence. Okay, here are two human footprints. One in rock that evolutionists themselves, you know, they dated at one and a half million years. Of course, we believe that there isn't anything on earth that's that old, right? And then the other rock, this one here, is uh, in rock that evolutionists up until this time dated at 250 million years ago. Uh, they said it was earlier, it was well established with all the artifacts that we had found in here, 250 million years old. And when this came out, all hell broke loose. 
Uh, it has just caused incredible consternation. In fact, people insist, even though it was found by people in situ, they uncovered it. This has got to be a forgery. Somebody must have carved that into the rock. There is no way that that could be true. Now, here is a beautiful vase that was encased in solid pudding rock. It was examined by a number of scientists and published in the America, Scientific American in 1851. And people have puzzled over that for many years since then. Have they ditched their theories? How old the, the earth is, evolutionary concept of geology? No, not at all. And I could show you examples of numerous artifacts that I haven't, didn't have space on this paper uh, to show you of people who have dug from 300 feet down. For example, there was one little doll, a figurine, 300 feet under the ground. They have no idea how it got there. There's so many artifacts that there are scientists now who are just devoted. How do we explain all of these anomalies, uh, anomalistic science? And there are some way, way batty, freaked out uh, explanations that are out there. One explanation that I read said, well, maybe some of these things got into the earth because there was somehow a transference between a parallel earth and a parallel universe. And I said, whoa, you really believe that uh, science fiction stuff in the movies, huh? And, uh, but this was a serious guy. He was absolutely serious. And some people have tried to say these are just frauds. They were planted there. And yet the evidence is so strongly against that. Uh, many have not even tried to go that way. Some just say, let's ignore it. They've just tried to ignore it. One of the most bizarre explanations I've read was by Ted Twitemeyer, who claimed that through scientific processes that we do not yet know, that solid matter can pass through hundreds of feet of other solid matter and uh, reside there. Maybe it's through lightning storms or other. We don't know what the processes are, but obviously it's passed through solid earth. Okay, he was serious. It's amazing the lengths to which some people will go to avoid the obvious, and the obvious is that planet earth is not as old as evolutionists say it is. Now here is a, a bell with a still intact clapper on the inside. It was encased in a huge chunk of coal. In fact, the, the coal, when it was broken apart, it's got the image of, the, of the, this thing um, it, on, on each side of the, the coal. The coal seam that uh, it came from was supposedly over 100 million years old, and a creation organization sent this bell to the Oklahoma University to get it checked out, see what the metallurgy was like. They looked at it and they said, oh, this is not like any metallurgy that we've seen from the ancient world, certainly not like the modern world. And it was a different mixture of copper, zinc, tin, arsenic, iodine, and selenium. And it had a god, some kind of a god that they've not seen on the top. Here is a hammerhead with part of a wooden handle still intact that was buried in Cretaceous rock. Now, they chiseled a good part of that away so you could see the hammer. And the evolutionists, they admit, yeah, this is Cretaceous rock here, lower Cretaceous, and they say it dates from 110 to 115 million years ago. And so what's their explanation? Do they explain that the rock is young rock? No. What they do is they say, well, this axe head somehow in the recent past must have fallen down a deep crevice and then the crevice got filled up uh, th somehow through other mineralization and this is young rock here but it was found in old rock. Well the problem is this rock looks exactly like the rock they dug it out of and secondly the handle was beginning to turn to coal in certain places. There's all kinds of mysteries that these guys are having a hard time speaking about. And speaking of coal let me give you another picture, which is supposedly layered over millions of years. Why so many coal trees that are standing upright through several million layers of the coal? And what's even more embarrassing, not only on this one, but on this chart, why are there uh, coal trees that go up not only through one layer of coal representing millions of years, but also through layers of rock representing more millions, and then another layer of coal? And then what's even more puzzling about this is here is one solid tree. It's coal here. Up here, it's petrified stone, and it's coal up there. What's going on? Okay, there's a lot of puzzles that people are having a hard time uh, explaining.
And the reason I bring up all of these things is to demonstrate that people who do not have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ are not going to be persuaded by evidence alone. Okay? Here's what Jesus said, Luke 16:31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the, uh, the dead. Evidence by itself will not change a human heart. It may embarrass it. You know, it may make them do double takes and refine their theories. It, it may make them do a number of shuffling things, but it will not make people change their heart. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to give new spiritual eyes. Now let's go on in chapter 28, because it's really a situation that's far worse than what we've described already. Now what we've described already is pretty bad. You just ignore the evidence. But he says, no, it's worse than that. These Jews want blood. It's not just simple lack of belief in evidence. Now that's implied in the statement, there was no cause for putting me to death, which implies what? That they wanted to put Paul to death, right? And then if you go into verse 19, it says, but when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. So Paul's not accusing the Jews to Rome. The Jews are accusing Paul to Rome. And they not only... They say, okay, either kill Paul yourself or hand him over to us to, to be killed. But they want blood. They are being aggressive in their hostility to the true faith. You know, over the last 100 years, the liberals, homosexuals, and other enemies have not acted like uh, some of the enemies in other nations have acted. They've been very polite. Why? They've been a minority. Uh, they're trying to overthrow what was going on in America. And so they've said... You know, we need tolerance. You guys need to be gracious to us. You need to be loving. You need to have a free competition of ideas. But what happens, the moment they get into power, they don't want a free competition of ideas because they can't compete. They want to shut down radio stations. They pass a hate crimes bill that could put me into jail for preaching against homosexuality. Uh, they are aggressive in their hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a willful hatred of God. It's not simply a lack of evidence. And, of course, the last century has seen the most aggressive persecution of Christians ever worldwide. Now, I should point out, not all unbelievers are going to be equally aggressive. Some are very polite. Some are very nice. Some of the nicest people and friends that I have are unbelievers. But the only thing that's going on there is they are not as far down the slippery slope where depravity takes us when God withdraws His restraining grace. Remember we saw, was it last week or the week before, God's restraining grace brings all kinds of good things into the lives of unbelievers. They can do good. But when God removes that, faster and faster they go down this slippery slope and eventually people will get more aggressive in saying about Jesus, we will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19, verse 13, uh, 14. See, that's what depravity is all about. It's what blindness is all about. I want to reign over myself. I don't want Jesus telling me what to do. That's what depravity says. And wherever our hearts as Christians have even the slightest, remotest resemblance to that attitude, we better crucify it quickly. Because you're either for Christ, you're against Christ. You're either sliding downhill, you're going back uphill. Okay? Even within us, these kinds of things are symptoms. When we see them, crucify it by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I can see the same evil I see in other people out there. I see it in my own heart. Please rescue me from that. Do not let me stumble. Now let's move on to point D. What's even more unusual is that they were vigorously opposed to the very Messiah that they and their ancestors had looked forward to coming for 1,000 years. And we see that in verse 20. <clears throat> for this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. For the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. All Paul's preaching is what the Jews have been looking forward to for many, many centuries. This is blindness indeed. And then the last evidence of the blindness of the Jerusalem Jews is that they must have known that they didn't have a case because they don't know how to repeat in Rome. Uh, verse 21, And they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. 
That's an amazing thing. If they thought they had a, a slam dunk case, uh, case against Paul, why didn't they go to Nero? Why didn't they at least mention this to the, the Roman Christians? I think they recognize, you know, we could get in trouble in Rome bringing false accusations. I think they recognize they don't have a case and there is no case against Christ or against Christianity. Now, if that's the case, here's the question. We have no case. Why do we not repent? Why do we not believe the message of Paul? It's because of depravity. The human heart is not capable of belief apart from grace. John 12:39 says they could not believe. They could not. There is a bondage of our mind, our will, and our emotions to our human nature. Blind people simply cannot see. They need God to give them new life, a new heart, and new eyes. Well, let's move on then to the Jews in Rome and see if they're, they are any different. Perhaps they'll be a little bit more neutral. And initially, it actually looks that way. Uh, lo- look at what they say in verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what you think. That pretty, sounds pretty open-minded, doesn't it? These guys really want to listen to Paul. They want to hear what the evidence is. Uh, they, and yet, immediately, they, they show unwittingly their prejudice along with the illusion of being open-minded when they say, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. They knew about Christianity, and yet they're ignoring it because it's spoken against everywhere. They're willing to believe lies without ever looking at the evidence. Now, Paul is uh, very grateful for the opportunity to speak the word to these people, but he is under no illusion that any of them can come to Christ apart from God's sovereign grace moving in their lives. You see, all unbelievers start with a basic prejudice against God, and the human heart loves to suppress the truth about God. They may think they're open and objective, but they are not. And I want you to look at Romans 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, this has already been written prior to Paul coming to Rome. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul is saying every unbeliever knows that God exists. They know the law of God. They know they daily are violating the law of God, but they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth of God's existence, his character, his creation, his will. Do not be surprised by blindness. Here's what one author said about the atheist Sir Thomas Huxley. The famous agnostic Thomas Huxley was once lovingly confronted by a very sincere Christian. This believer stressed to Huxley that he was not in any way impugning Huxley's sincerity. Nevertheless, might it not be possible that mentally the great scientist was colorblind? That is, some people cannot see traces of green where other people cannot help but see it. Could it be that this was Huxley's problem, that he was simply blind to truth that was quite evident to others? Huxley, being a man of integrity, which I question, uh, being a man of integrity, admitted that this was possible and added that if it were, he himself, of course, could not know or recognize it. Of course, that's not true. Lots of colorblind people know they're colorblind. Okay, I'm colorblind, at least on blues and blacks. I can't tell the difference between those two. So if I'm wearing the wrong color socks, it's because I'm colorblind, okay? And in the same way, there are people who are pushed by presuppositional apologetics to have all of their weapons knocked out of their hands, their armor stripped off of their bodies, the sword of God's Word is at their heart, and they admit, I don't have any answer, I don't have any argument, but I hate it anyway, and I'm not going to submit to God anyway. And people have explicitly said that when they're up against, uh, up against the Lord in this way. According to Romans, unbelief is not lack of evidence, it is a willful unbelief. Now, a further evidence of their blindness was that they had unbelief despite clear biblical teaching. Now, you might think the reason somebody's not believing is because you're such a lousy uh, witness. 
or they, 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 you know, you've invited them to church. Well, Pastor Kaiser must be, you know, a, a lousy preacher or something because these guys still are not convinced. Jesus was a pretty good preacher, wasn't he? Uh, there were a lot of people who were turned away by him. Paul was a pretty good preacher. Let's take a look at what this text says about him. Verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Paul was using their own presuppositions, their own scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. All of the scriptures that they're familiar with, he's using and he's saying it's perfectly fulfilled in Jesus and yet it doesn't make a dent. It does not make a dent upon them. And I have to admit, I have been sometimes puzzled when I have witnessed to, uh, to Jewish people to sometimes see some of these people unbelievably blind. It's like there's a veil there in front of their eyes. Of course, I've seen it with Gentiles too, but uh, you bring Scripture after Scripture that it's just like it's got Jesus written all over it. It's perfect fulfillment, and yet they cannot see it. You read them their prayers from their own liturgies, and you say, look, at you're looking forward for a Messiah that's going to do this, 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 and the other thing. Here's a Messiah, Jesus, who fully fulfills it, and they just will not accept that. I remember a court case in Israel back in 1972 that was rather interesting because it was a, uh, a guy who sued a Jewish mason for refusing to put A.D. on his father's tombstone. And uh, he just wanted him to put that he died in 1972 A.D. And you may not be familiar with the controversy. Uh, Jews uh, typically refuse to use A.D. and B.C. B.C. means before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, and the year of our Lord. Well, they don't want to acknowledge the existence of Christ and that he's divided history into two periods. And so <clears throat> they um, have substituted uh, some other uh, uh, labels for that. But anyway, these, these um, Orthodox rabbis, they insist on dating things from creation and they've got that date wrong as well. But the court... Uh, heard this case, they referred the case to the rabbinate for their opinion. The rabbinate rejected the citizens' appeal, saying that the Christian cal calendar is unacceptable in, in, in Israel since it was based on the birth of Jesus. However, in a very controversial ruling, and it was very controversial, the court overturned the rabbinate's opinion, saying that they themselves had dated their letter 1972, thus implying the legitimacy of the Christian calendar. <laughs> but they don't want Jesus on their lips in any fa fashion. You look in the Talmud, it refers to Jesus, but it uses cryptic language. It will never do that. Why? It's because of depravity. It's because of blindness of their hearts. And we need to feel sorry for them. We need to pray for them. Lord, break through. Speak light into their lives. Yeah, the encouraging thing for me is that God's grace can slice through that hardness of heart, the blindness of the eyes, and the deafness of the ears as easily as a nice slicing through soft butter. As easily as He spoke the world into existence, He can speak a regenerate soul into existence. As easily as He said, let there be light, He can take away the blindness. In fact, that's the analogy Paul uses. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see happening in this passage. God is speaking light into their lives, and they're believing it. They're receiving it. Our God is so powerful. Verse 24, And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. The amazing thing is not that some disbelieved. I mean, that's what you'd expect to normally happen. Romans 3.11 says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. In fact, genuine saving belief is absolutely impossible apart from grace. And let me prove that to you. John 6.35 offers life to all who will come. And yet it goes on to say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 3.16 offers life to all who will believe. And yet, in the same gospel, Jesus says they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts 
that they should see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn again and I should heal them. Well, Paul's quoting the same verse, same conclusion. Men are blind and until God heals their sight, they cannot see. Life is offered to all those who will seek God and yet Romans 3.11 says there is none who seeks after God. Life is offered to those who will look and yet 2 Corinthians 4.4 says whose minds the God of this world is blinded. They cannot look. Life is offered to those who will hear. But Jesus said in John 8, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to hear my word. He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. What he's saying is until God grabs you, regenerates you, brings you into new birth, into his family, you can't believe. What this means is salvation is not any of us. It's 100% of the Lord. 100%. He even gives the gift of faith. Now it's easy for God to do that. He can do it just like that. Life is offered to those who will open their hearts and yet the scripture indicates it is impossible because the heart is like stone. Now of course the solution has already been given in Acts. Luke said of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart so that she heeded the things which were spoken by Paul. And that's what we need to pray for. Lord, open the heart of my child. He's not getting it. He doesn't understand. It's like there's a veil on his eyes. Lord, open the hearts of people in our church. Open the hearts of other churches. Open the hearts of my unsaved loved ones. When God opens their hearts, that's when they'll begin to get it. And God guarantees that all of His elect will come to Him. All whom the Father has given me will come to me, Jesus said. All. And I praise God that He has given His promise of covenant succession to, to my children, grandchildren, uh, you know, to a thousand generations. So it's not difficult, but neither should we take it for granted. What we do is we pray for it. We plead with God for it. We believe His covenant promises. We uh, put that faith into action by raising our children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. Now we're going to briefly, just briefly, look at the, the, the next verses because I'm going to be picking up on that next week. But this does prophesy the blindness of Israel in the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, Go to the people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. So that's the goal of the gospel, bring healing to the blind. That's the goal. But the text here says they willfully close their ears. They willfully close their eyes. Paul Johnson in his book, Modern Times, The World from the 20s to the 80s, points out that at the very time that Stalin was butchering millions of people, the Reverend Hewlett Johnson of Canterbury in the Anglican Church there spoke of Stalin bringing in the kingdom of Christ. Blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. And it was happening here in America too. There were, uh, there were um, theologians and others who were speaking positively about this. And he's butchering millions. Now these people were turning a blind eye to that. They knew about it. You couldn't help but know about the butchery that was going on over there. But they were thinking, well, yeah, there's bad, sad things that are happening. But it's worth it because these communists are bringing the love and the peace and the prosperity of Christ's kingdom into this world. It is blindness, utter blindness. And brothers and sisters, you are dwelling in a land filled with blindness. We ought not to be surprised by it, but we've got a God who can conquer the darkness, who is far greater than all of that blindness. But if this does not scare you concerning the potential, the potential danger of your own human heart, it ought to scare you. Because Romans 11 warns the Gentile church, they too can fall away. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you can fall into blindness just as surely as they. Okay, we all need the cross. We always need the gospel. All it takes is a little ignoring of the Holy Spirit in your life. What happens? It becomes a little bit easier to ignore the Holy Spirit the next time. A little bit easier. You start a downward slide till you get to the place where you don't even hear the Holy Spirit anymore. You don't even hear your own conscience convicting you of sin. It is a scary roller coaster ride to be on. In fact, I put in your outline that our cry to God should be the cry that that one man made to Jesus when he says, if you have faith, he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. We don't want to grow in unbelief in our heart, and yet we realize unbelief is always lurking around the corner, ready to trip us up. 
We need to be aware of it. And the only remedy for progressive blindness is the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the thing that encourages me is anybody who prays that prayer, they see darkness in their heart. They see unbelief in their heart. And they say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. God always hears that prayer. Jesus heard the prayer of that man who cried that to him. Another conclusion I draw from these words is we need to share the gospel just like Paul shared it. And some people might say, why even bother sharing it if they're blind? If they're deaf, there's no point. Well, Paul shared it. And the reason he shared it is because he knew God uses the means of humans speaking his word. Our nudgings, our testimonies, our bringing the word. In fact, that's how he regenerates people. He's chosen to regenerate a person as the word is brought into their lives. And at some point, boom, God brings regeneration uh, into uh, their heart. And so my goal is not to regenerate people. My goal is to bring the word and watch God do it. That's the exciting thing about bringing God's word. Another reason for sharing the good news is simply as an expression of love that you have for all that God has done for you. The missionary Roland Allen told the story of a medical missionary who served in a region of India where it seemed like most of the people there were progressively getting more and more blind. I don't know if it was something in the soil or uh, what the issue was. And he had developed an operation, a procedure that would uh, restore the sight to them. I'll have to talk to Dr. Shepard about you know, whether this is glaucoma or cataracts because uh, Roland Allen didn't say, didn't specify what it was. But anyway, people from all over the region came, they had this surgery done, and they realized they had been spared from a lifetime of blindness. Now he said, nobody said thank you, but they don't have the word thank you in that language. (laughs) So they used a different word that meant sort of thank you. Their word for thank you meant, I will tell your name. Wherever they went, They spoke the name of this missionary, and there were people coming to him in droves for this procedure. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. That is the best thanks that you can give to Almighty God is to share the gospel with everybody that you speak to and say, I am so glad that once I was blind, but now I see. I am so glad God had mercy upon me. He can have mercy upon you. I want God's blessings into your life. That is the best thanks that you could give. May we be a church that is not discouraged by all the spiritual blindness that we see around us. It's no match for God. That's not the issue we should be worried about. May we be a church that never loses the wonder and the gladness and the love toward God and the worship of God that springs from a realization of what we have been saved from. May we be, like Paul, sharing the gospel with everyone that we meet, a holy compulsion to see His kingdom extended. May we be a church that has Paul's confidence that the elect will come to him. And so we wouldn't be surprised when people persecute us because that's what people who are blind do, hardened hearts do. But we're looking for the ones that God is going to change their heart through my testimony. What a glorious privilege that would be. And we serve an incredible, merciful, wonderful, awesome God. And to him be the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word, the warnings that are in it, the encouragements that are in it. And I pray that this, your people, would be encouraged, but also that they would be filled with a fear of that downward slide into blindness that it is so easy to go into that First, Second uh, Peter chapter 1 warns us about. May we be fruitful in the kingdom. Uh, may we not have this short-sightedness. May we be sensitive to your Spirit's promptings. We want to live in the light. As 1 John says, we want to walk in the light. Help us to do so. By the grace of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.